Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, again we come into Thy presence, knowing that as we face a dark and evil world, Thou art our hope and our salvation, and with Thee is the victory. We pray, O Lord, that Thou wouldst confound the workers of iniquity, that Thou wouldst crush the humanists, that Thou wouldst establish again this nation as a covenant people. O Lord, our God, send out thy word and by thy spirit bring great numbers into thy kingdom and make us again a people whose delight is in thy word. Bless us now as we study thy word and grant that thy spirit may speak to us the word that we need so that we may flourish and abound in thy service, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we shall go through a number of verses because they have a considerable unity and need to be, really, either taken almost singly or as a unit. Matthew 5, 21 through 48. As you will remember, we dealt with the Beatitudes and saw that they are addressed to the poor in spirit, they who feel their spiritual need. The poor in spirit are those who are the meek, the blessed meek, which means the tamed of God, and God declares that those who are the tamed of him, that is, broken to harness, useful to him, shall indeed inherit the earth. Then he goes on to speak of the need of Christians to be and the fact that if they are truly his people, they are salt and light to the world and that they also stand in terms of his law. He goes so far as to say, Whosoever shall set aside this law and teach men so, that being the culminating offense, they are certainly to be regarded as alien to his purpose. Now to continue with verse 21, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, while, whilst thou art in the way with him. 
lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right hand offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, Yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now to understand what our Lord here says, we need to look at two things. First, his declaration in verse 17, Think not that I am come for the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And the word fulfill has the meaning of put into force. This is the meaning in the Greek. Now, then when our Lord deals with the law in the passage we just read, what he says is ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Again and again he uses that expression. Now that's a curious one. 
Why does our Lord follow that usage? He is quoting, in most cases, the law. Why then does he suddenly put it at a distance from them? We have heard that it hath been said by them of old times. And why not ye know that it was said by them of old times? Or ye know that it was said by Moses? Well, it was a peculiar usage. It attracted notice. And our Lord, in a sense, was putting a distance between the giving of the law and his day. Let's drop that for a moment and look at something else so that we can understand what he was doing. People always, conservatives, in particular, talk about the Constitution. But the mistake most of them make is that when they are talking about the Constitution, they are not talking about the Constitution. They are talking about something that was said of old by the men at the Constitutional Convention. But the Constitution, as it exists today, is a radically different document because any legal document that is amendable is always to be interpreted in, the, in terms of the most recent amendment and the most recent judicial interpretation. Now that has been the nature of law through the centuries. In other words, it is a recognition to a degree that the law is not infallible. It has to change, it has to grow. So that it is not the original wording that is the binding force, nor the original intention, but what it has come to mean in terms of court interpretation. In other words, if ERA is passed, the whole of the Constitution will be reread in terms of ERA. This is the only way that law works in a fallible world. So that, in no sense, when we talk about anything connected with the Constitution, are we talking about what the original framers had in mind? Well, now the same thing was true of God's law, illegitimately so, because God's law was a perfect and infallible declaration. It could not, therefore, change and alter as human laws could, but men so changed it and interpreted it so that the law had come to mean something radically different. I think the classic example of that is that the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, was actually finally interpreted to mean, and the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, so that the Seventh meant exactly and strictly what the tenth said, neighbor. And neighbor meant someone who lived next door. So if you slept with a woman or a man who was 
three miles away, they were not your neighbor, therefore it was not adultery and there was nothing wrong with it. Now that's the kind of legal precedent and decision and refinement of meaning that prevails today with the Constitution. So that our Lord is dealing with that which was said back there. Ye have heard that it hath been said. You all know that it has been said. Now let's look at it. Something as it was long ago. Not as it is read today. Not as it is taught today. Because the rabbinic saying was, the word is like water, the interpretation is like wine. In other words, the interpretation is superior. It is the true meaning. Now, as they dealt with the law of God, what they did was either if it was something that was foreign to their fallen nature and disposition as thou shalt not commit it, adultery, they restricted the meaning so that it didn't apply to the woman next door, but it could apply to a woman at the other end of town or down the road a ways. Then again, where they found a law that was a relatively easy matter, they made it difficult. They added rules and regulations in order to say, look, Lord, you're demanding something so difficult and unreasonable of us, but we're so strict about the adherence. The Sabbath law. It commanded rest on the Sabbath, except for works of necessity. And yet, what did they do? Why, they were so super strict on the Sabbath that it was a great debate as to whether you could eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath. But what if the egg were laid the day after the Sabbath and the hen had obviously been laboring over it to produce it on the Sabbath? Well, you could not, many held, eat that egg. Well, could you eat any egg? How long did it take to make an egg? That was an argument that never ended. But a lot of people became super holy by their strictness on details like that. How many feet could you go on the Sabbath walking? Only so many and no more. You could not light a light, so you hired a Gentile to come in and light it, an unbeliever. And the Orthodox still do that. They pay someone in the neighborhood to come in and turn on the lights from sundown Sabbath to Monday morning. They will not turn the lights on and off. And so on and on. Of course, since drinking was not work, there was no rule or regulation against getting drunk on the Sabbath. Now, with all the rules and regulations they added to very simple laws, they made the law a burden. That is why our Lord said, My yoke. The yoke refers to the law. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. But the yoke of the law, as the Pharisees interpreted it, was heavy and oppressive. 
Any relationship, by the way, that is a legal one, a binding one upon one another, is called a yoke in terms of Scripture. That's why someone with whom you are a co-laborer is a yoke fellow. And marriage is also a yoke because you're together under a common law and a common vow, a covenant. So we see that what had happened to the law as our Lord began to minister to Israel was that the law on the one hand had been altered so that adultery could be forbidden and yet practiced and practiced legitimately. And the Sabbath, which was to be a time of rest, was made such a difficult thing in terms of work that you had to be very careful that you didn't walk so more than so many feet and do so many things. Dorothy has a recent book in which there's an, an amusing episode about Sabbath observance among wealthy Orthodox Jews in England. It describes life at this luxury resort hotel and on the Sabbath, their great pleasure was bridge. But how are you going to play bridge and keep score? Because picking up a pencil and writing is work. Playing bridge is not. So each of them sat with a large book in his lap or next to him. And instead of keeping score with a pencil, they turned to the page which represented their score and kept score that way. And in that way, they were very good, pious, orthodox Jews. They had not broken the Sabbath law. Now, our Lord is speaking to people with this kind of perversion of the law who want to take it outwardly who want to say, look, Lord, see how strict I am. I'm not as these poor publicans. I keep every jot and tittle that our rabbis have laid down and have refined so that I am super holy. In this way, they made the law a matter of works while breaking it as far as its real meaning was concerned. And so our Lord takes up several to show that the law must be kept from the heart, that it is a total thing. It is in word, thought, and deed. Thou shalt not kill means thou shalt not be angry with a brother without a cause. And a brother here means a fellow believer. And anyone who is is in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say unto his brother, Rekha, you're an empty head, shall be in danger of the council, the council of elders. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. We are therefore to be brothers one to another as Christians. So that if we bring a gift to the Lord, we, if we have any problem without cause with a brother, we are to go away first and be reconciled to our Christian brother and then come 
and offer our gift. When we are in a dispute with anyone where we have any fault, we are to agree with our adversary quickly and make peace with him and make restitution, lest we be delivered to the judge and the judge deliver us to the officer and we be cast into prison. God will not protect us when we are in violation of his word. Then he takes up the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And our Lord, as he took this up, knew full well the kind of thing that I just described to you because it was in the process of being formulated even then. Although since it had has become much more refined in Talmudic thought. But he says, not only are we not to commit adultery physically, but we are not to commit adultery in terms of our imagination and our planning, in our hearts, in our minds. Moreover, he says, if our right eye offends us, we are to pluck it out. By this he does not refer literally to amputating ourselves or maiming ourselves by blinding ourselves, but that whatever aspect of our life is a problem to us, that aspect of our life we are to separate ourselves from, even though it is so basic to our livelihood and our functioning that it's like an eye and a right hand. Then he goes on to speak with regard to the writing of this divorcement. The rabbinic thought of that day would certainly have made a modern woman's lib feel that this was the ultimate in male chauvinism, and in a sense it was, because rabbinic thought had gone so far as to say, if you see a more attractive woman, that's grounds for a divorce. If your wife oversalts the food, or undersalts it, or if she puts the food down before you, let us say a broth or a soup, and it's too hot, and you burn your tongue, and she didn't warn you, that constitutes grounds for divorce. Now, this does not mean that divorces were routine for every kind of trifling reason such as that. What it means is that they made this kind of thing law to give the man such total power that the woman would be afraid to push him on anything because he had any kind of ground imaginable to get rid of her. And so it was that, indeed, Israel had these laws, while not usually put into practice, their purpose was to intimidate women. That was their function. Now, our Lord says, I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication 
causeth her to commit adultery. I shall not go into a long exposition of what fornication, porneia, means here. I've devoted more than a chapter to it in the Institutes of Biblical Law. Fornication does not mean adultery. It is a broader term, and it can cover a number of things, including uncleanness, rebellion, unbelief, and the like. Then our Lord goes on to deal with speech. And he says that we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. It had become commonplace as people became less and less godly to become more and more extravagant in their speech and to swear by this and that and the other thing that what they said was true. This is something we should be familiar with. There was a time when very little business was done by written contract. Virtually everything was done with a handshake or by word of mouth because most people were trustworthy since most people were Christian, either by profession of faith or by very strict schooling. Now we're finding that a written contract has little meaning, and it is really worthless. We heard recently from someone in Southern California who was visiting us of a prominent church in Orange County where one member in a business deal with four other members cheated those four each out of $20,000. But when they figured the cost of going to court and the difficulty of any settlement and the loss they would suffer, they had to write it off exactly as the prominent church member who rigged the deal knew they would so that the, the written word or contract is worthless today. But our Lord here summons men to truthfulness in speech. Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. We are to speak the truth in simplicity and no more. Then he goes on to the biblical statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then into the fact of non-resistance to evil. Now what does our Lord have reference to? Some of you have heard me speak on this aspect in passing before in answer to questions. Because this is an area where many people have questions. Is our Lord a pacifist here? Then why is there no hint of pacifism elsewhere in the New Testament and certainly not in the Old Testament? And the answer is, of course, that he is speaking to a particular situation. He is speaking to a people who are hard of heart and are determined upon a course of action that is going to lead to the most fearful 
single event in all of history, the fall of Jerusalem, in which perhaps two million people died, a disaster without equal. And they were doing this, building up for a rebellion and using the Word of God to justify it. They never stopped to think that God again and again, as in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and elsewhere, says that when captivity and bondage come to a people, it is for their sins, and that the remedy is not in rebellion and revolution and in armed resistances which are futile, but in a return to the Lord, in faith, in godly character. But Israel was determined that they were going to render to the Romans an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That they were not going to allow them to get away with anything. Even though the Roman legions covered the country and they were in the hands of a foreign conqueror. And our Lord tells them, resist not evil. This is not the way to destroy Rome, but the way to destroy Jerusalem and Judea. Your course of action will be one of utter destruction. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him take thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. It's a word that was common not only to Rome and to Greece and to Israel, but also to the ancient Persian Empire. It was a word that it was used in a number of languages. They are in a position of bondage. They are under an alien law. They have an inferior position in terms of that law because they are not citizens, they are subjects. And so our Lord says, if you're drafted, go. Because if you will not go, you will be compelled to go even more. And if they want to expropriate something, give it to them and be cooperative. And do not go to court in a Roman court expecting God's law to be enforced in a Roman court. Very soon we're going to have the same situation here, I fear, if it continues at present. One-third of all the federal judges have been named by Carter. And one of the men for whom there was a little bit of discussion is a man widely suspected of being a mafia front and is known to be anti-Christian and a homosexual. He is going to be in a particularly powerful post. What kind of justice can you get in such courts? They may soon come when the courts will be the last place to go, which is what our Lord is talking about. What do you do in the face of this? 
There were the Romans and there were the Jews, the Israelites. You have heard that it hath been said, this time not of old, because this was not of old. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that he may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans the same? To love our enemy means to keep the law in relationship to them, as I've said so many times. Thou shalt not kill, commit adultery, bear false witness, steal, or covet or defraud your enemy. You treat him as you would be yourself treated. Now, very practically, what does this mean? It means, and I think I've seen a very clear illustration of this in some of these court cases. One of the things that has become very apparent as these trials have become more bitter and intense is the marked discourtesy of state and federal officers and attorneys. It used to be customary before a trial for the lawyers to introduce themselves to the judge and for the lawyers to introduce themselves to one another and to shake hands. This rarely happens now. The state and federal attorneys come in almost with a snarl. They are deliberately discourteous to those who represent the Christian church or school. It is very clearly a situation where they have the power, they are bitterly resentful that anyone stands up to them, and they are determined to be as ugly as possible. And they are very ugly. And in the face of this, it is very impressive and moving to see, for example, Attorney William Ball walk into the courtroom, continue with the historic amenities, greet them, speak graciously to them, and ignore all their discourtesies. He is doing unto them as he would have them do unto him. It means, therefore, in ways great as well as small, we manifest the grace of God. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? We become children of our Father which is in heaven by manifesting to those who are our enemies and who are working for our destruction the grace 
which God requires us to show to all others. If ye salute your brethren only, if ye greet them only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans the same? And so in the courtroom, the federal and the state officers talk only to each other and look as though the Christian attorneys have leprosy. What do you do in a situation like that? You do then greet them and ignore their unkindness. And if they at the last minute make a cancellation and a change in the court calendar and tell you only when you walk in on Monday morning to kill time for you, when you effect a change, you very graciously let them know. This is what our Lord is talking about. This is how we are called to act in things great and small. What is our Lord saying? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Perfect means not what we've come to make it mean in English, but mature, fully grown. We are to be mature and fully grown, not to indulge in childish demonstrations of our hostilities, childish pranks in a courtroom or in our neighborhood, just to let them know we can do the same thing they do. Are we no better than they are? To be perfect, therefore, is to be mature, to be fully grown, fully grown in the grace of God, fully grown in the knowledge of His Word, fully grown in the application thereof to every area of life. We are going to need this kind of maturity in the days ahead. Friday night I mentioned the situation in California, how SB 1632 was defeated largely because apparently of the protest of the homosexual community. James Robinson, one of the most forthright pastors and evangelists in this country, has been barred from the air because in one of his sermons he spoke out against homosexuality. And the Federal Commission has said that that cannot go out on television. And so his program, his Sunday morning worship, is barred now from television. Well, we are being despitefully used. And we need to deal with it as long as the courts are open through the courts, but also remembering but ultimately it is only as Christians are again Christians, truly, having not only the form of godliness but the power thereof that we will change these things. And what our Lord tells us in the Sermon on the Mount is that we must be broken to the Lord's harness. When we are the blessed meat, then indeed we shall inherit the earth. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast called us.
broken us to harness, and given us tasks to do. Make us zealous, strong, and able in thy service. Keep us, O Lord, from being despairing or faint-hearted. Make us ever mindful that greater is he that is in us and with us than he that is in the world. Bless the persecuted churches and schools and give them the victory. Confound the workers of iniquity. Especially we beseech thee the homosexuals who are working now to subvert and to destroy thy church and thy schools. Grant us this, we beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen.